Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. church. Morning. Uh, excited to be here, excited to get to um, teach. Hopefully they'll get this microphone figured out. We can't handle that for 40 minutes, can we? There it goes. And so excited to, to get the beer for those of you tuning in online. Thanks so much for uh, tuning in that way. Uh, instead of giving you a big compelling introduction to the sermon that's going to lead us uh, into the text, I want to take a minute and just covet some prayer. I, I do, as David said, I get to step into uh, the role that John Ryan was, was uh, in, and so as part of church planting, I get to now um, be the one that, that oversees all the Acts 29 church planters in this part of Illinois and in the whole state of Missouri. And so uh, it's a big undertaking, but he will be, John Ryan will be overseeing seven different states, and so he gets to move into a new role. So I would just, I would ask for prayer in that. Those, those men are my heroes, genuinely. Uh, they've walked with me for 10 years. They loved me and my wife well, and so to, to be one who gets to stand not only among them, but gets to lead them into a different, a, um, an increasing a dependency upon Christ, for me, is a huge honor, man. It's just an incredible uh, opportunity, but I would ask for prayer. And, and at the same time, if you want a way to serve, if you want something to volunteer, there's something a little bit different, uh, that maybe, maybe God's calling you to church planting specifically as a, as a man to plant a church. Maybe God is calling you uh, to just serve in a capacity that says, hey, like, I just want to volunteer my time and resources and some of my uh, experience to help start something from nothing. Then just come find me. Run to me after, after this and find me, and I will guarantee I'll give you something to do. All right? I need all the help uh, that I can Good. And so instead of giving a big, compelling intro, I'm just going to hit you with a big idea and three points, and we're going to get into the Bible. Sound good? Yeah, All right. So we got three po- a big idea for you comes first. Same big idea uh, as last week. If you're familiar with the, the way I teach, I like to give a big idea uh, every week, and then we preach straight through a text. So big idea is generosity flows from the cross. If you don't have an understanding of the cross and what Jesus is willing to give for you, if you can't quite literally see Christ on the cross, arms out, hands open. We will never open our arms and our hands to anyone else. Our generosity has to begin in the cross. And then three points to hopefully flesh this out. Generosity is rooted in the gospel story. Generosity is sustained in the gospel story. And generosity, most certainly, is at the heart of the gospel story. We're going to start it off with generosity is rooted in the gospel story. If you're ready, say ready. Here we go. Verse 8 says this. I say this. This is the Apostle Paul talking to the church in Corinth. I, Apostle Paul, say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness, or you could say sincerity of others, that your love also is genuine. So I, I like this. It stands out to me because the Apostle Paul comes and says, hey, I'm going to tell you something, but I'm not going to command you in it. And that's interesting because the Apostle Paul has all of the authority by Jesus Christ himself to command us in whatever he so chooses to command us in. And yet he comes in here and he says, in light of generosity, I'm not going to command you, but rather I want you to want to respond. I want people to see your sincerity. Now you might say, especially in light of 
money, well, the Apostle Paul couldn't command us to do anything. I know enough about the gospel pastor. I've heard enough gospel preaching that I've been set free from the law. But the Apostle Paul commands us in all sorts of things, doesn't he? There's something called the 59 one another's in the New Testament. 59 commands that much of them come from the Apostle Paul. Here's some of them uh, for you on the screen. He says, speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's something that we actually did doing today. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The Christian should love the other as if Jesus himself were standing in front of them. Uh, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Do not, next, do not lie to each other. Bear each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. How's that going for you, church? Teach one another. Admonish Build up one another. Encourage one another daily. There's all these commands that the Apostle Paul most certainly has commanded us to do. But what's incredible about this is while he has all authority given to him from King Jesus, he comes and he says, I'm not going to actually command you in this. I just want you to want to do it. I want people to see your sincerity of heart. What Paul does not say is, I want people to see the measure of your heart. The more you give, the more people will know how much you love them. If you give more, it must be because you love more. He does not say that, does he? No, he says, I want them to see the sincerity that is in your heart. I want them to see you. So how does Paul get to the heart of their heart? How does Paul get to the heart of the heart of Corinth? He shares the gospel with them. He reminds them of the gospel, the story of Jesus. Normally, right, we wait till the end to really get into who this Jesus is. But by God's grace today, we get to hit it on the front end. Amen. Amen. Verse 9, he says this, talking to Corinth, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So the way that Paul enters into, right, beginning to, to shape the heart of Corinth is he doesn't just say, hey, be generous because it's good and right to be generous. That would be legalistic. That would be religion. Rather, the apostle Paul says, you know the grace of the gospel, Corinth. If you remember from last week, I, I mentioned who Corinth was as we entered into this text. And if you were not here last week, let me teach you or refresh your memory. The church of Corinth was a jacked up church. I got a, a good friend in the Quad Cities who did a whole series on 1 Corinthians. He's called it Following Jesus in a Jacked Up Church. I thought, dang, that's our church right there, right? And so the church at Corinth, man, they were getting drunk off the communion wine. They were getting, uh, they were overeating um, and keeping food for, meant for communion from people that were impoverished. They were sleeping with each other's step parents. Like, it was a jacked up church, right? And <laughs> so, I was going to make fun of you, but I won't. And so it was a messy church. I don't want any of you to fall into those categories, so I'm not going to do that. And so Paul is looking at this church that was so messy, like so dysfunctional, so ridden with sin. And he's talking to them here, and he's saying, you know, like you know the gospel. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus. You are recipients of this grace, Corinth. Remember where you were. Oh, church, I hope you never lose the sight of God's grace over you in Christ Jesus. Never forget your story. Never forgive and forget. Forgive and then just remember all of the moments he's redeemed you all throughout your story. Yeah? He does not command them. He says, give in response to that. I love Tim Keller's quote. Tim Keller, I quote all the time, who I love. And he says, the gospel says, I am loved, therefore I do. And religion would say, this is a negative connotation of the word, religion would say, I do, therefore I am loved. The gospel says, I am loved, therefore I do. Religion says, I do, therefore 
I am love. Paul, the apostle, talking to Corinth here, writing the second letter, and he's saying, you know the gospel, and the gospel is sufficient to lead you to know exactly how you should be giving. And so what he's saying is that generosity then is not about a percentage. I'll teach a little bit on the tithe here in a minute, but generosity is not about a percentage. So ultimately what the apostle Paul is saying, if you want to know how much to give, like if you're type A in the room and you do lists for your list and you need me to get up and tell you exactly what to do, it's not going to happen in this sermon. Paul says, if you want to know how much you should give, what was the cost of your salvation? It was death. Give in proportion to that. If you want to put a percentage on it, Give in proportion to that, yeah? Right, you cannot. It's not about generosity. It's not about 10% or 20 or 15 or 90%. Generosity is a measure of the heart. The Apostle Paul is loving his church well and saying, if you want to know how to respond to this impoverished church in Jerusalem that's getting put inside of brass bulls and boiled alive or ripped out of their front door of their house and lit on fire, it's where we get the term Roman candle, by the way. If you want to know how to give to them, look at the, tr- the cross at what Jesus gave and then give in accordance to that. And he says, and he reminds them of the gospel. Jesus was rich, which was rich, and he became poor for your sake. You know of that grace. Right? Do you know the gospel, church? You came on the right Sunday. I'm going to hit you with it on the front end instead of waiting until the end, okay? Like, this is what Paul is saying. Do you know this grace, this reality? Just think about it. That Jesus Christ, the King of kings, who's existed for all of eternity, existing within the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, has existed forevermore, speaks the cosmos, like out of his mouth, Canis Majora comes out of his mouth, speaks everything that we could ever see, taste, feel, experience. The Son has been with the Father from the beginning of the beginning. And it is that son that surrenders his kingdom, surrenders his position next to his dad, comes, dwells in human form, walks among humanity, temp- among uh, humanity, tempted as we are tempted, yet not in sin. And what happens? Him who gave up his riches to become poor, the very people whom he has come to save, kill him. They put him on a cross. They sacrifice him in their They sacrifice him, not in their place as a substitute, but he knows the drill, and he goes, this has always been the plan. Dad told me from the beginning of the beginning, this is exactly what would happen. I would become poor, so the very ones who try to kill me might be made rich in redemption, rich in grace, rich in mercy. And if that's not enough, like that's the gospel, if that's not enough, he literally dies, resurrects a new life, sends us the Holy Spirit. And then as if that's not enough, then he says, I know you're going to be all jacked up, following Jesus in a jacked up church. I know you're going to be all messy. I know you're going to be jacked up. I know you're going to mess it up. And yet I'm going to keep you sealed in me because of the work of the Son, not because of anything you could ever do. And as if that's not enough, then he says, and there's a full inheritance for you. A whole entire kingdom that has been established, where you've been invited in this kingdom to bask in my glory forever and forever and forever and forever, to be recipients of grace and mercy, literally, church, forever and ever and forever. That is the gospel. Paul is saying, you know this gospel, Corinth. It has changed you. It has formed in you something new. Look at who you once were. Now look at who you are in Christ. Give in accordance to that. Listen, if any pastor ever stands up and tells you you have to give 10% or you have to do this, be on guard. It very well may be a reflection of their legalistic heart. Perhaps it's a 
place of shame that they're preaching from or a place of their own acceptance. Maybe they're catering to the one anxious family instead of teaching the multitude. We don't know. But what I know I can't do is the gospel does not afford me the opportunity to get up and say, you're bound to 10%. For some of you, that would be really difficult. For some of you, it would be very easy. And Paul says there is no percentage we put on it. Look at the cross. Every thought, every emotion, every feeling has to be dumped out through the gospel. That's what Paul is doing here. He's forcing them to gauge generosity based off the generosity of the cross. Think about it like this. Whenever you cook, you got anybody cook in the room? Anybody like to cook in the room? I like to cook. I primarily cook in our family as of six months ago. And so uh, I like to take all the credit for the last 13 years, though, okay? And so, but you know, like when you go to like use a strainer, right, and you're trying to strain out potatoes or corn, whatever it may be, what happens? That strainer catches the good and lets everything else go into the sink, yeah? Well, this is what Paul is doing here. He's forcing the church to take all their thoughts, all their feelings, everything that they would view in regards to greed and generosity and dump that stuff out through the gospel, so that the gospel might actually strain everything that they're considering or thinking. I heard a pastor word it like this once. He was uh, talking to a congregation, and he said, um, the majority of you in the room will treat Jesus like he's a drawer that's in your dresser. And, and so whenever things are going well, Jesus is the top drawer. And then whenever things are going not so well, you, or your finances are off, you put your vocation in the top drawer, or you put your marriage in the top drawer, whatever needs attention in that moment, that's what kind of goes to the top, and Jesus kind of falls where Jesus lays within that dresser. And then he goes, Jesus is the dresser. He's like, he's not a, a drawer. Like Jesus is the whole entire thing, and everything has to be placed inside of that dresser. You put your marriage in Christ. You put your vocation in Christ. You put all of your thoughts, all your feelings, all of your emotions in Christ first, and then everything else comes. This is what Paul is doing here in the text. He's saying, do not give just to give. Rather, receive the gospel. You know this grace. You know the grace of the gospel. Make sense? Now, within that, I do think it is fitting and good to teach on tithing while we're in this. And so let me teach you about tithing. The word tithe meant a tenth of everything. And so whenever folks get up, they talk about tithing meaning a tenth of your finances. That's a really juvenile and small version of what was actually expected of the people of Israel. And so if you look at 2 Chronicles 3, it says this, And he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites, that's who governed the temple, that they might give themselves to the law of the Lord. So they might focus on study and forgiveness. Uh, as, as, as soon as the command was spread abroad, the people of Israel gave in abundance the first fruits of grain, wine, oil, honey. If you're real crunchy, this is like your jam right here. Grain, wine, oil, honey, crocs, whatever you into, <laughs> and all the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of what? Everything. Everything. Not just their finances, Everything, right? Every single thing. Let's keep reading. Leviticus 27, 30, elsewhere in the law, says every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy. It is consecrated. It is sanctified. It has been set apart to the Lord. And so what Moses is saying in, in there specifically is that every tenth grape, every tenth sheep, every tenth cow, every tenth coin, every tenth of everything was brought to the temple. The thought really wasn't that profound. It was God, Yahweh in the Old Testament, we call him Yahweh in the Old Testament, still him, just use the word Jesus a lot more now, had given everything to you, 100%, every resource you could ever need to accomplish his mission, not your own mission, but 
his mission. Everything was given to you. And so the thought was, since God has given me everything and commanded a tenth, that's really not that big of a deal. Like, I can keep 90% of everything he gave me. I'll give 10% back to the Levitical priesthood, and they'll use it to govern the temple, and they're going to give it to the poor. Like, that's a pretty good jam that we're in right there. And yet, what happens is we hear this idea of a tenth, and we think, but what about me? What about my kingdom? That's exactly what Israel did. Well, God said, here's everything that I have. Just give me 10% and watch what I can do. Watch how little, by the way, you do with 90 and how much I can do with 10. Like, watch what happens here. And what happened was that the hearts of Israel uh, grew more and more dark and more and more sinful, and they stopped giving their first fruits to the Lord. Here's, what's, here's the catch. This is interesting. They gave to the Lord, and even in the midst of their giving, God calls them thieves because they did not give their best. They didn't give their first fruits. Malachi 3, 8 through 10 says this, will a man rob God? Question mark. Yet you rob me, he says. But you ask, here's this is so profound. But you ask, how do we rob you? They're asking, how do we rob you? We're giving to you. We're giving of the lamb, the sheep, the wine, the money. The, we're giving to you. And he says, in tithes and in offerings, this is how you rob me. And so what's fascinating about that is that you can give to the Lord, but if you're not giving to the Lord from a heart that is generous, that's been gripped by the gospel, by a heart that looks at the cross right here and sees that Jesus has literally poured out everything, it's not a generous gift. I would even go a little bit further and say, you're not, in fact, giving to the Lord. You're just giving to yourself because it makes you feel good, makes you feel accomplished, makes you feel like you're kind of checking this box into the Lord. So this week, as I said, I processed through, like, what would a modern-day equivalent look like for someone who gives, and yet the Lord would still call a thief? This is like my own personal reflection this week. And I thought, dang, I do this. I actually do this. One of the ways that I can find myself doing this right here, as the pastor in your church, okay? I'm not probably the only one that does it, by the way, you know, is this. I give through online giving, and sometimes that online giving feels more like another auto-pay deduction than it does an actual tithe to the Lord God. Anybody else? Just me. Okay. Okay. I'll t- I can take I can lead out in that way. It's okay. I'll lead out in confession, right? And so what, what happens is whenever our tithe feels like another auto-pay, it isn't sincere at all. It's just a subscription. What am I doing in that moment? I'm just subscribing to grace. A little bit of a subscription, trying to feel good about myself. Another piece of software in my life that takes a deduction from me so that I can feel a certain way. Well, that's legalistic, isn't it? That's religious. That's not giving from a sincere heart, from a heart of generosity, from a heart that has looked at the cross and seen, dang, God has given everything in giving his, king, in his, giving his son to us. He becomes poor so that I might be made Rich. Now, while we're no longer under the expectation of 10% or under the tithe, I would argue this. There is no way that we stand on this side of the cross and on this side of the resurrection and we look at everything that Jesus done and for us and say, I think I could probably give a little bit less. Like if anything, as saints, think about this, that are standing on this side of the cross and this side of the resurrection. If anything, we should look at that and think, my God, look at what you've done. Look at what you've given me, not in a house and three kids and wife, but look at what you've given me in Christ. Like, I have every, you've met every need through the church body, right? My mom died. I have lots of moms. My dad is dead. I have lots of dads. My brother's an atheist, and oh my God, look at all the brothers I have in the room. You've literally given me 
everything in Christ. It does not diminish the tithe, does it? If anything, it would exalt it. And so with that in mind, I would say it's better to walk in God's will with only 90% of his money than walk outside of God's will with 100% of his money. Yeah? First thing Paul says there is the gospel should shape your generosity, should be rooted in the gospel. The second thing then is generosity can only be sustained then by the gospel. If that's true, if it's just 10%, that's easy. Generosity is sustained in the gospel. There's some really significant things here that Paul says. It's super wordy, but so I'm going to give it to you on the front end. There's a few things he says. He says, one, your obedience can become a desire. Pin that for a second. Your obedience can become a desire if you take notes. Second thing he's going to say in there is finish well. Finish what you started. The third thing he's going to say is give out of what Christ has given you, bringing them back to the story of God. Again, verse 10 goes like this. Generosity is sustained in the gospel story. Paul says this, and in this matter, I give my judgment. Now, when he started off, he said, I don't have anything to command you. I'm just going to command you to look at the cross. But now he says, as an apostle, I'm going to give you a command. He said, this benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do the work. And so the first thing that Paul says is that your obedience can become a desire. Now listen, if, if you don't know the gospel, that's highly legalistic. You should just do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. That's that's very moralistic of you, but what, that's not what he's saying. He's talking to the church at Corinth. He's already reminded them of the gospel. He's forced them to kind of see where they've come from. And now with that in mind, with the gospel in mind, he says, your obedience can become a desire. You, he does not say, you desired to do this, and then your desire increased. No, no, no. He says, no, you, it was good for you. You started to do this, and then the desire followed. Listen to me, church. For those that are in the room that believe and know the gospel. There are seasons in your life where sometimes you just have to be obedient and pray to God that it becomes desire. There are just seasons, church. We walked through the Psalms for 15 weeks, you remember? A lot of you are in that season right now. There are seasons where you walk out obedience because you know the gospel, not to earn anything, but because you've already been a recipient of everything. You still tracking with me? You model obedience and pray to Jesus that it becomes a desire that eventually becomes a discipline. Paul says, you did not desire to do this. You just modeled obedience, and then it became desirable to you. Second thing Paul says that stands out is this in 11. So now, verse 11, so now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. This is also really wordy, normal stuff for Paul here. He says, the readiness you had in the beginning, see that that same readiness exists in the end. Right? Don't start strong and taper off. Rather, if you're going to start strong, then end strong. There's a hundred different ways that I could have illustrated this for you. There's a, I mean, we do this. We have to do this all the time, give ourselves little pep talks to keep rolling. How many of you have ever ran a marathon? Okay, one person. I can't only see because of the lights. How about a half marathon? How about walk from the couch to the... <laughs> from, from couch to refrigerator. We got anyone who's done that? It's tried quite the trek sometime. How many of you ever, like, talking about ladies that have given birth? Talk about we do church planting. 
Uh, when you start something from nothing, maybe you're just entrepreneurial and you started a business. How many of you started a degree program, bachelor's, master's, PhD? We have doctors in our church, surgeons in our church, right? There are times where you start strong, man. You're excited, you're fired up, you're thrilled to do it. And then there comes a moment where there's a bit of that lull and you literally have to kind of give yourself some unction. Like, hey, we're going to do this, right? I've never given birth. Naturally, I've been in the room a few times during that. Even in that, I know that there's a, a moment where we're excited, we're going to the hospital, things are, I got the go bag, right? Like we're in the car, headed there, Andrew's doing great, and there comes a moment where you're like, you gotta push, babe, you gotta push, now's the time. And she's like, I just want drugs. I'm like, no, you gotta push that baby out, right? We gotta move, we gotta get through this thing. There's all these different ways we do that, right? All different types of ways. Paul is saying that. He's saying, literally, there's this church in Jerusalem that is impoverished, that is being killed. This Macedonian church is supplying their need. That's the first part. He says, will you also supply the need? And if you start, I've seen the obedience. I've seen it become desire. And also, like, finish well. Their lives at stake over here. The mission of God is not at stake. The unstoppable mission of God will prevail. But he's saying, these are real people over here. If you're going to start strong, then you most certainly better finish strong. Let me give you an exhortation here. Is your eagerness to walk with Jesus the same now as it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, depending on the age of the saint in the room, 30 years ago? Can you see where unction is lacking in your walk at times? I've only got to walk with Jesus for 14 years. And praise God, if you know my story, I should most certainly be dead or, or in prison at the least. And the Lord, man, when he snatched me out of bed and called me to faith, he snatched me out of life of alcohol and addiction and all sorts of things. 14 years. Let me tell you what. There's, here's the reality of this. You know, people will say, Corey, how are you still excited? How are you still pumped? You still seeing your relationship seems to feel good? It's hard. <laughs> That's how. I try to be very vocal when I'm up here going through stuff. Try to talk through that. You have to wake up literally, sometimes, David and I talk about this, you have to wake up every day with a wartime mentality. Like you have to wake, I wake up every day and I'm like, man, when my feet hit that cold hardwood floor, I want to say to no, he's going to have a real bad day today. Like Corey Johnson got out of bed again on behalf of Heights Community and the saints are about to charge the gates of hell today. Every day I wake up, Andrea asked, my wife asked me the other day, she's like, how do you do that? Why do you get up early? Why do you do this? And I was like, I just don't want to ever give him a foothold. And not to use that flippantly, like every day I wake up, babe, I want him to know he's going to have a bad day. There's a reality there. When you walk with the Lord, when you start walking with him, he's initiated everything. There are lulls and seasons that come, church. And you have got to pray like crazy that he will just ignite in you unction to continue pushing darkness back. Third thing Paul says is this. Give out of what a Christ has given you. Verse 12 for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. One of the primary reasons that the church in general, I'm talking about in general the church, is not generous is because they keep looking at what they do not have instead of being generous with what they do have. And what I mean by that is the Christians in general tend to hope for the best. They hope for more. They hope that something else is going to come their way. And then if they get the promotion, if they get the bid, if they get the fill in the blank, the degree, the whatever, then at that point, then they'll give generously. But the hard truth of that is this. No, they won't. 
Like if you have the thought of, if I had more, I would give more. Look at me. Let me be really clear for you. Make sure we're all uncomfortable. No, you won't. You would not do that. I sat in my whole missional community this week, and we talked about this very thing. They're all like, nah, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't give any more than what I give right now. Like, I know you sinners. I get it. That's why. And then we process through the gospel together with them, right? Like, I get it. I understand completely. What he's saying is that. Stop looking at what you don't have and look at what you do have. Because if you don't give generously now, you'll never give generously. By the way, Jesus, red letter, would agree. I don't think this will be on the screen, but Luke 16 says this. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in what? Much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also going to be dishonest in much. Paul and Jesus would agree that if you do not steward God's current resources, you're never going to steward his future resources. To quote Tim Keller again, he said uh, in a sermon, which I've said this numerous times, the worst thing that God can do for someone who's greedy is give them everything they want. The worst thing God can do for someone who's truly greedy is actually give them everything they want. That it might not be a taste of their grace, a taste of his grace, it might actually be a taste of his wrath. It might actually sow in you an even hardened and more dark heart if he were to give you your heart's desire. Paul says here, stop giving out of what, thinking about what you would give out of what you don't have. Instead, just be generous with what you do. Give in proportion to what you do already have. Does that make sense? Hopefully that makes sense for us. And in that, then, he's talking. I feel like I have to keep hitting on this. In that, he's saying, let the gospel be the thing that sustains you in that. Like, let the gospel be the thing. Don't ever give out of guilt. Don't give out of legalism. Don't give out of some religious desire to earn something that's already been given to you in Christ Jesus. Instead, with the cross in mind, with the resurrection hope in mind, then respond to the gospel. Respond in generosity, not just in finances. We're only talking about finances because it's here in the text. Just in general, like with your home, with your family, with your cars, with your clothes, with literally everything that you have with the cross in mind, then respond generously. Don't just dumb it down to finances. The third thing then he says, and here's why, generosity is at the heart of the gospel story. Verse 13, generosity is at the heart of the gospel story. I love this. He's going to bring in Exodus. So we're going to go back to the Old Testament and come back here. He said, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply for their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. And we'll hit the last sentence in a minute. So Paul ultimately is looking at them and saying, there's no better display of the gospel among a community than to have a community that's willing to equally sacrifice as Jesus' sacrifice for them. Like there is no greater display, right? They will know you. They will know me because of your love for one another, it says, Jesus says, right? They will know of me because of how you love each other is what's said elsewhere in the scripture. And so Paul is literally looking at this situation within the context, and he's saying, hey, right now, Corinth, you have an abundance. You have more than you need. Macedonians had nothing. They've given Corinth. Could you also give to Jerusalem? Who knows? There might be a day coming where you're in the same predicament that Jerusalem's in, and you're going to want them, if they're not in that situation, to meet your needs. And so all he's doing is calling the church to respond in the gospel. Still, it's just the same thing over and over again. He's saying, do you not see how equally and how freely Jesus has given himself, regardless of how people are going to respond to him? Once they professed faith in him, they are in Christ, 
Regardless of what they do, his grace, his mercy, sufficient for all. He's given equally to every person that was equally in need. We talked about it in the confession. They're saying now, respond to that. Right now, you don't have a need. You're doing pretty good. Serve your brother and sister. Hopefully, they'll reciprocate. Everyone will do it with the gospel in mind. And then in that, what's perfect about it, I love so much about this, is that then that reveals to us that both greed and generosity are best met within the context of Christian community. This is why missional community is so important. Here's why. If you're by yourself, no one can call you greedy or generous, right? Someone comes and tells you you're greedy, I don't know you, it doesn't really matter. If someone calls you generous, you're like, thank you. But if someone comes and says, I don't know, I think you're greedy, you're like, you don't know me. What's interesting is that within the context of Christian community, you can actually say those things. You can say, brother, sister, I, I think maybe you are being a little greedy here. Brother, sister, I think I've noticed your generosity. I'm seeing that, that I'm seeing you being generous with the resources that God has given you. If you're by yourself, you can't have that. Now, what's interesting about that is that if you are in a community that's not a gospel-centered community, you still cannot call out greed or generosity. It doesn't work that way, right? If you think about it with me like this, like if me and JJ are in the same community and we're buying the same things and we're the same race, the same ethnicity, the same socioeconomic status, we're into the same things, I can't tell him he's greedy because if I'm telling him he's greedy, who else am I saying is greedy? I am, right? And so that doesn't happen. I can tell him that he's generous, and he can tell me that I'm generous. We can pat each other on the back and buy each other the same gifts because we know what we like. But at the end of the day, like, that's not the church. The church is a diverse expression of who God is. It is diverse in race and ethnicity and socioeconomic status. It's diverse in age and stage of life. It's, it's diverse in skills. There's all this diversity that exists within the body of Christ. It's beautiful and it's incredible. And this is why we push people to missional community, right? We have folks that come in and they'll say, hey, do you have a missional community for my age or for my stage? And some churches do that and that's great. We don't do that. We say, no, we don't do that. Why don't you do that? There's lots of reasons that we don't do that. This is one of them, right? Because your MC, your missional community, if it's in fact missional and it is in fact a community, there should be diversity. You should have different diversity all throughout that thing. And the reality is this, right? In my own MC right now, I have no grandparents in my missional community currently, in, our, in my current missional community, right? How am I supposed to learn how to be a good grandparent? If I don't have someone who's going to love me and love my kids and kind of walk with me through the daily, the closest family we have is four and a half hours away that are grandparents. How do I learn how to do that? How is Corey supposed to learn his finances as I'm kind of coming into that stage of life where that really, really matters? If I don't have people around me that make more money than me, they can speak into my finances or make less money than me that I can speak into theirs, right? Rule of thumb from the pastor. If your financial person doesn't make more money than you, don't listen to that person, okay? And so that's where my thought was right there. So I need someone that's going to speak into my life in a way that makes sense. Do you understand what I'm saying? How am I supposed to understand and and acknowledge like the heartache of folks that are different race and ethnicity than me if I don't have those folks in my life? If everyone looks like me and sounds like me and spins like me and is in the same socioeconomic status as me, you cannot identify greed. You can't identify generosity at all. God has simply not set it up that way. And so he's looking at the church. The diverse expression of the church is found here in Corinth. And he's talking about Macedonia. He's talking about Jerusalem. And it's all the church, all the ethne, all the ethnicities, to use that word. And he's saying, we need you all to give to this thing over here. Does that make sense with you? And so, and then if they still don't get it, then he's like, this is not new. It's not a new thing. That's when he quotes Exodus 16. 
in verse 15, he says this, As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And that's a quote directly out of the Exodus. And what has happened in Exodus here, to kind of bring this whole thing home for y'all, is that Israel has been removed from Egyptian slavery. They're now out in the desert. They don't have anything to eat. And so Moses makes a petition on behalf of Israel to God, and God sends manna. He sends quail, but he sends manna to them to be able to feed them and sustain them. I hope that you are beginning to already see the gospel in that. Israel has already been redeemed. They've already been liberated. They've already been set free out of slavery. All they have to do is simply receive what God has already given to them in the bread, in the manna, the bread that falls from heaven, it says. And yet, what do they do? They grow stingy. They grow greedy. They begin to hoard the manna. What was supposed to happen, they're supposed to take the manna and, and gather it, and I might gather more than some of you. You might gather less than me or more than me, but the point was to equally distribute the manna. And what happened whenever they grew greedy and they didn't distribute the manna? What did happen to it? Somebody help me out. They did what? It became moldy, right? And maggots began to eat it up. And Paul is saying, he's further pressing. He's using the Old Testament to remind them of the gospel. This is always, generosity has always been at the heart of the gospel. Just as God equally redeemed them and equally gave them resources, so also they had to move forward to get the resources to supply to their church family, to the people of Israel. In that, then he's drawing a parallel that we do the same thing as the church. And he's saying that manna is money, and Israel is you. And if all you do is hoard and hoard and hoard and be greedy and greedy and greedy, money might not physically mold. It might not physically have maggots on it, but you better believe that that greed will most certainly begin to mold and eat away your soul. It's a direct exhortation from Paul to the people of that church. Now, what's beautiful about the gospel is this, is that there is most certainly a living hope. And so just as Israel received bread from heaven to be able to feed them and sustain them by nothing that they had ever done, you better believe, oh man, you better believe that there's a better bread that comes down from heaven. Amen? Amen. And that is Jesus. And so in the midst of our greed, in the midst of our hoard, in the midst of our wanting to collect everything, he gave himself, becomes poor, so that we can be rich, the apostle Paul says. Jesus himself calls himself the bread of heaven. I said last week, if you're going to be greedy for anything, church, be greedy for Jesus. Just let him redeem it for you. If you're going to be greedy, be greedy for him. And you know what? This bread of heaven, this perfection that comes down, becoming poor so we can be rich, man, you can take them all in ingest every single bit of him that you could possibly ingest, and then just watch him, church. Watch him form in you and reform in you new identity and new purpose and new drive and new unction and new mission. And and then he just says, just take it all in. You can eat it in, drink it in. However you have to get to him, you get to him. You run to the cross. If you want to see generosity, you look at the cross and the resurrection. If you want to understand what greed looks like, you look at the cross and the resurrection. You just look at him. You say, my God, I don't look like you. I'm feasting on all these other things. I'm greedy for all these other things. And yet you've given yourself freely to me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Why don't you all stand with me for communion? As we're moving into communion, we take communion together every week as saints. As often as we gather, we eat together. If you're unable to grab a communion cup on the way in, please make your way to the front here. You can grab a cup. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, 
This is my body, which is for you. And do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So every week we take communion together uh, as a family. We don't do this as a religious opportunity. We do this as a what we call like a redemptive opportunity. And so before you start cracking open those packages there, I want you to take a minute uh, this week specifically. Uh, we don't usually, I don't usually encourage you to break the bread. Uh, but, but this week in light of Paul's word here to second, the church in Corinth, uh, before you take the bread, if you haven't taken it yet, I want you to actually break it. I want you to think about that, like his body broken for me, this bread from heaven that come down to sustain me, to give me life, had to be broken for me. And there's no guilt in the gospel, church. That's liberating. Like that's good news. That reminds me that I don't have to be that bread for someone else, that I don't have to go anywhere else to get that bread. I don't have to seek out identity or assurance anywhere else. But rather, I can turn and look straight to Jesus. He willfully, willingly broke himself for me. That's the beauty of the gospel. And then before you take the cup representing his blood, keep mindful of that. I mean, his blood was poured out for you. That's a good liberating reality that we get to set in as saints. It is good news for us. We need to look at our sin to see our need for him. And then, man, when we get to look at him, it liberates us. It's just grace again. So communion affords us this beautiful opportunity as often as we gather to just eat in the bread of life again and again and again and to drink in the grace and the mercy that flows from it again and again and again. And as as we do, it begins to form us and reform us. Allow the story of God, the gospel, before you leave today to form and reform in you the beauty of Christ.